Hello, welcome to Fangraphs Audio. I'm Carson Sestouli. Because you listen to Fangraphs Audio and or read Fangraphs.com, you're very probably aware that Fangraphs hosted its first ever live event last month in New York City. The live event offered an opportunity not only to meet Fangraphs personalities, but also for better baseballing writers to exchange ideas. Last week, we released the audio from the media panel from the same live event, panel hosted by Jonah Carey, starring personalities such as Will Leach, Michael Silverman, Matthew Cerrone, Alex Spired, and David Biederman. Today we offer the New York Baseball Panel, featuring Yankees bloggers from River Ave Blues, Joe Polakowski, Mike Exisa, and Ben Kaback, from MetsBlog.com, Matthew Cerrone, and from ESPN, a researcher for Baseball Tonight, and also a Mets fan, Mark Simon. Though by definition, some of the material in this particular panel will be dated, there are also some interesting comments about organizational philosophies and personnel decisions that are to be made in the next year. Here is the New York Baseball Panel from August's Fangraphs live event. Uh, Good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to the very first Fangraphs live event. Uh, I'm Fangraphs founder David Appleman, and this is Fangraphs managing editor uh, David Cameron. Um, When I first started Fangraphs about five years ago, uh, almost to this day, uh, I never really anticipated we'd be running live events. Um, When uh, There's actually more people in this room today than for about the first year of the site uh, visited the site daily. (laughs) And uh, so uh, we're just really happy uh, how our work the past uh, few years has resonated with both baseball fans uh, and the media, and we're just really excited that we've been able to make a positive contribution to the world of baseball analysis. Um, We have a pretty jam-packed schedule, so uh, I'm going to kick this thing off by handing it over to uh, Carson Sestouli, who will be moderating the New York panel. Uh, Hello, ladies and gentlemen, or mostly gentlemen. Um, uh, How are you doing today? Uh, This is indeed the uh, New York baseball panel. Uh, we have here uh, a, a number of gentlemen who, uh, whose names you will almost definitely be familiar with. Uh, we'll start from the, uh, from the right here, the right, uh, stage right, uh, with our troika of uh, River Ave Blues contributors. Uh, to the uh, furthest right, we have Mr. Mike Exisa uh, of River Ave Blues, uh, Mr. Joe Polakowski, or Pavlikovsky, as he's been referred to, uh, in, at least in the airways, uh, Mr. Benjamin Kavak. Uh, also a leader, uh, a, a leading resource in uh, subway-related um, information. <laughs> he runs, uh, is it uh, Second Street? Uh, Second, Avenue. Second Avenue Sagas, yeah, which is, uh, I think it's a preeminent um, subway blog here in the, in the city. Uh, we have Mr. Uh, Matthew Cerrone over here from MetsBlog.com. And the uh, head researcher for Baseball Tonight, also a writer for uh, ESPN New York, Mr. Mark Simon. <laughs> Um, so I'll ask you to uh, hold your applause till the end. Uh, there's going to be so much good stuff. You just get tired. Uh, uh, yeah. So um, let's start off. The, I think the way we want to start this off um, is with um, letting each of these guys kind of give a, uh, a sort of state of the team um, type of um, analysis right now. Um, obviously, do we have uh, to? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, with the with the uh, River Ave Blues guys, um, um, 
There might be, uh, well, I don't know, if you're same, same thinking or if you have uh, differences of opinion, that'll be sort of interesting to see. Um, um, Matt Cerrone um, started a Mets blog, has been around for some time. Um, we'll have, um, you know, I, definitely a, a fan's angle and uh, as someone who's very dedicated to covering the team and has access uh, to the players. And uh, Mark Simon will have, uh, uh, the, he'll, do, he'll handle the nerd side of the, uh, of the Mets. Um, but let's start, uh, Exisa, with you, just to kind of give uh, sort of a state of the team, where you find them now, and, uh, you know, I guess what you see for the remainder of the season, perhaps. Well, obviously right now things aren't going so well. The Yankees have lost three, uh, four of their last five. I think it's four of, the, four of their last five, five of their last six, something like that. Boo-hoo. I'm I'm of the belief that it's just kind of a lull There's not some kind of fatal flaw that's dooming the Yankees right now It's just, you know, kind of a perfect storm of players not hitting Pitchers not pitching And overall, they're still in first place in the East Still have the best record in baseball you know, <laughs> it happens. No, it just seems like, but it seems like they're not all hitting at the same time. You know, there's a Swisher and Teixeira are killing the ball right now. Yeah. Jeter's coming around, but A-Rod's not hitting. The bottom of the order was carrying the team earlier in the year. Now Gardner's in some kind of horrible slump. Uh, and Granderson hasn't hit at all. Granderson hasn't hit a lick. Lance Berkman hasn't hit since again. Well, Granderson, like, it's like after he gets a break, he comes back and then does well. Like, he had the injury, and then he came back and hit really well at the injury, and then he came out and hit really well after the All-Star break. Yeah. But anytime he gets prolonged playing time, it seems like he just slumps like crazy. Yeah. And they've done this before. This isn't the first time where half the lineup has just stopped hitting at the same time. And they're giving far too many at-bats to Francisco Cervelli right now, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with, with four more at least to come on Monday. Yep. Great. Yeah. So does that count as each of your state of the teams? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a bad, they're not at a bad spot. They're still in first. Tampa's not playing as well as they had been two weeks ago, um, and the Red Sox are kind of charging. But once they get through this stretch of the schedule, it'll ease up a bit, and I think they'll start winning again, probably today. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah, uh, uh, Cerrone? So that uh, sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah. They'll probably start winning today. Right. You know. Right. Well, that's... Uh, that's for the Yankees. Yeah. Yeah. They're a Mets fan. No, the, yeah. the Mets are... Um, in transition, it feels like. I mean, really, um, you know, they, they turned things over in after 04, and I think that window of the Omar Minaya era is kind of closing a little bit, and uh, if it hasn't closed entirely. And uh, so I think they're in, in kind of a transition mode, and you kind of see it in the record and the way they play. They're very inconsistent. I don't think they have any kind of sense of what's going on. So, um, you know, it's been a tumultuous five years under that you know, we had the Adam Wainwright curveball in 06, and it's pretty much been kind of a bumpy downhill ride ever since, and uh, that's continuing now. So, like, my guess is I think you'll see, assuming that this trend continues from the summer, uh, I think you'll see a lot of uh, changes in the offseason, deservedly so, uh, hopefully starting with the, uh, the GM down. And, you know, from that point, you know, we'll see what happens. But, I mean, that's kind of where they're at. I mean, to talk about this season and games and maybe returning to winning, I think is a little premature. I do think they have another, potentially could have another hot streak in them, but really what's the point? They probably need to go 40 and 10 at this point to, uh, you know, secure a wild card spot or even a division. So, yeah, where does that come from? We've seen nothing right, exactly. that would make right. me think that they had a 40 and 10 uh, stretch in them. I guess to sum up on a day-to-day basis, the way that I can sum up the Mets, two words, prognosis negative. Uh, <laughs> it's almost like you just feel every day that you watch them, 
Last night's classic example. Up to one in the eight, starting pitcher, Jummies, pitch is fantastic. All right, which bullpen guy is going to wind up chucking this up? And he's got the option to go to Acosta. He's got the option to go to Parnell. And if you look at the way that things have gone the last three weeks, it's been the wrong option every time. And I think that's partly what's a little frustrating for fans is that when we watch the games, you can very easily identify using whatever you want to make these decisions. It's fairly obvious what's part of the future and what isn't. You know, so you get a, a pitching performance like John Neese last night, and Mets fans are going to be excited about that because here's a young pitcher, 0-3, to three, under control. Like He's been excellent. Obviously part of the future. And then pass the torch to a slew of guys that clearly aren't. I mean, they're decent players. They're going to be fine. They'll have careers somewhere else. But like they're clearly not part of whatever the next group of winning you know, baseball will be in City Field. I think there's also a fear among Met fans that, uh, that certain moves could be made or certain maneuvers could take place by people trying to save their jobs that could essentially set the team back in a direction that the New York Knicks are in. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's very bad. Um, <laughs> the, um, in terms of the Mets, let's, uh, we'll get to the Ariakis friends in a second, but the Manaya era has been one that I would say is, has been characterized by anguish, it seems like. There's a lot of hand-wringing, um, not, just, not just for this year and not just for uh, the odd way in which uh, Minaya has dismissed coaches uh, or something like this where it you know, comes out, it's like 2 a.m., they're out at the club or something. I don't you know, bizarre circumstances. Um, but also just the way that they've, the sort of fabulous and, and conspicuous ways that they've lost the division a couple times, right? And I'm wondering, uh, Simon, we'll start with you. We'll go to sure. Simone here. I'm wondering, is this, this sort of anguish, because uh, uh, that could also be just bad luck in, in a couple different ways, right? So those, those times that they've sort of given away the division, um, maybe some of the signings that Manaya's made, is this a question of bad luck that, you know, because you live in such a big New York media market, it's, there's, a, there's a narrative that's saying, you know, oh, we're, you know, we're always this close. Or, or is it actually just like poor moves being made by the GM or a combo deal? It's probably a combination of everything. If you look at the history of the team, though, if you go back even to the 80s years, all the guys on the 80s teams will tell you, we should have won three. We should have won four. They won one, and they tortured everyone else through 87, 88, 89, 85, where they came up. That short. I always make the joke that Mets is just a, an acronym for must endure thy suffering, which is one of those <laughs> things that a, a fan, I think if you're a long, deep-seated fan of the Mets, you, you kind of come to grow and expect it. I think you're right. I think it's all those things. Um, I think it's part, again, I'll go back to this sort of transition idea. I mean, I think for the most part, being a Mets fan has been this dramatic experience. And it's funny because of the Yankees and the 70s were sort of the, the Bronx Zoo and all the, the, the silliness. Um, and it took Steinbrenner being removed from the game pretty much to kind of get some stability uh, with Sick Michael and kind of rebranded the franchise. And uh, I think for the, for the Mets, for the most part, it's been, always been dramatic, even though the World Series in the 80s was insanely dramatic in the end. You know, it's just kind of the way I think it works. I think fans expect it to a certain extent, whether we like it or not. Um, and it's part of the fun, but you've got to believe Miracle mentality, I think, is part of our DNA. But the last couple of years have kind of ruined that a little bit. The, the back-to-back collapses, I feel like, have sort of makes it hard to believe. You know, so um, I think that's part of it. And I think the ownership is in transition as well. It's it's going from an older generation to a younger generation. And I know these guys to a certain extent personally from my experiences with Metsblog, and they're very nice and they're smart. 
but uh, you know, they want to win. I just don't know that they know how to win. And I think that's part of the problem. And, you know, so I think this sort of transition of who's in power, who's in charge, who's making decisions, who isn't, what's going on financially, all of that stuff starts at the top. And it does sort of translate into the play on the field a little bit, I think, because you've got inconsistent players. And then you've got an inconsistent fan base that just doesn't know what to expect or what to believe in. And so I think all of that kind of makes for that experience. You almost wish that the ownership would have learned from the lessons of the past because it's, it's almost the same thing that happened late 80s, early 90s, where essentially Jeff Torborg equaled Art Howe. That was essentially the same mistake. And uh, they take you up, and then they take you down, and then there's a period where they're down here for three or four years, and then someone comes in, in the case of, of the Torborg era, it was Bobby Valentine, and brings the team back up. And then they level off, and they go down a little bit, and then there's a decision made somewhere within that where if you're part of the fan base, you just shake your head. I do think that's part of I think that's a common experience, though, around pretty much all sports, even you guys. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it hasn't been 30 years of domination. I mean, for the most part, it's, it's been ups and downs. But I think uh, with, with uh, the current era of, of uh, baseball and the economics of the sport, when you're a team in New York and you look at these guys, you think to yourself, well, wait a second. You know, why are we going through these experiences if they're not? We should be dealing with the same kind of resource base and the same uh, mentality. And I think that's part of it. I don't think, and I have no idea, but I'm guessing that Kansas City Royals fans don't necessarily look at the the Bronx and think, wow, how come we're not operating that way? They kind of know what's going on. But for Mets fans, I think we look across the river and think, what what's the deal here? Yeah. Now, uh, let's uh, talk to some of our Yankees guys here. We... uh, it, obviously, it's it's a slightly different narrative going on in the Bronx. Um, you have a, a different, I guess, the anguish. If there is any anguish associated with being a Yankees fan now, it's that you are in the toughest division in baseball. You know, and I think that uh, the most recent base run standings uh, have, you know, it's like Sox, Rays, uh, or you know, sorry, Yankees, um, Rays, Sox, like one, two, three, or you know, one, two, four, or something like this. Um, but the team. So there's two things. One, having to play in the AL East, and what sort of challenges, unique challenges, does that present to the New York Yankees? Um, and then two, just talking about, we talked about Manaya here a little bit, right? And maybe some of the questionable decisions he's made. Um, Cashman actually seems to kind of gotten smarter, maybe as he's gained more autonomy. But I know a lot of the offseason uh, signings coming into this year um, were, were smart in just the amount of homegrown players they have on the team. Um, but go ahead, K-Back. You want to start? Sure. Um, well, I think just to address the anguish issue, it's a little bit of a different anguish than the Mets. I and mean, the Yankee fans sometimes act as though the team should go 162-0. and And when you lose a game, it's sort of like the end of the world. Um, you know, I think I'm a little guilty of that at times. And it's, it's a much different attitude because the team, you know the team is good. You know that they can beat any team on any given day. And when you see them lose in bad ways or they can't get a runner in from third or they drop a pop-up in front of the pitcher's mound. You know, you just get very frustrated <laughs> by the team. Um, but I think Brian Cashman has definitely shown some improvements over the last five years. If you look at sort of how the 2005 and even the 2004 team, which was a good team, got put together, it, there was this sort of spare part mentality to it where they were just sort of putting together whatever they could plug in terms of holes and they weren't building up. And then, you know, if you it's sort of the narrative is that Cashman got more autonomy in 2005 where he was able to draft Phil Hughes, or well, that was 04, but um, in 06 when they got Java, was it 06? Java yeah, and Java Kennedy. Kennedy. Um, and they put together this really strong farm system. 
And they're still waiting for a couple of pieces um, to, to, to arrive. I think you see it with the way the bench is constructed this year, where they're still trying to plug in um, players that maybe wouldn't have a job in two years when some of their prospects pan out. Um, but they, you know, they haven't maybe used their financial clout to give them depth at the major league level as much as they have at the minor league level. And I think talking about the division, the Rays and the Red Sox and the Yankees, they all push each other to be better. You know, you look at the Rays, it seems like they never make a bad move. I mean, you know, everybody has a pet burrow once in a while. It happens. Um, the Red Sox obviously run very smart, smartly. Um, so, yeah, I think these three teams are constantly pushing each other to get better. And really, you look at the end of the year, it's going to be like one or two games that separate them. And, you know, luck comes into play then, you know, where a bad bounce or a good bounce, depending on what side of the you know, bounce you're on. Or a ball hitting a catwalk. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Something like that, you know, it can come into play. So, you know, obviously all three teams are very good. The Red Sox have their injuries. That's a problem. But they're all very good teams. And really, if any one of them would have won the division, nobody would have been surprised. And I do think that's... You know, it's this competition where they're all trying to top each other. Yeah, and they're all playing you know, kind of similar strategies. There's a huge emphasis on the farm, yeah. uh, especially for teams. You know, the Yankees have the problem where their financial clout leads them to buy free agents, and that means loss of draft picks. So it means they're, they're operating a little bit differently than the Rays, who aren't going to make those, those, those uh, free agent signings. They're going to get to keep their draft picks, and they're going to get to be able to build, you know, and draft the Desmond Jennings and the uh, Jeremy Hellickson's who are going to be able to power the franchise for the next few years, where the Yankees, in many cases, will, will give up those picks. Like for next year, if they sign Cliff Lee, you know, they're out a first-round pick next year almost certainly, and then that's going to, you know, that's going to change the way they have to build the team. Uh, we saw that a lot in the mid-2000s, and it's kind of getting back to the other side of the topic uh, that Carson brought up, is that Cashman, I think, has gotten smarter from that. I think it's not just more autonomy. I think it's that he looked at the mistakes they made from about the end of 2001 uh, through 2005 or so, and he saw all the mistakes they made and what you know, the moves they made and why they didn't pan out. Um, and you can even you can see that like in the Curtis Granderson trade, uh, where they're trying to you know, they, they have the prospect that they think can come up, but they trade him for a guy who's relatively young and can fit in the system. Uh, that's not a move I think they would have made uh, made back in the, you know the mid 2000s. I think they would have traded they would have traded Jackson for someone much older and much more established. And it's a move they might not have been able to make because they wouldn't have had Ian Kennedy. Yeah. They wouldn't have had Austin Jackson. Go so they trade Jackson for someone older and less productive, and, yeah. and you know, it, it, it's just a, it's a matter of learning, but the autonomy definitely Yeah, helped. a few years ago, Cashman, when his deal was up, and he went to Steinbrenner and he said, listen, if you don't change the way things are going, if you don't stop signing Tony Womack and Jared Wright and guys like that, it's, you're going to bottom out at some point. It's just all going to collapse at once. You have to start getting younger, and it starts in the farm system. And that's really when it all started, 2005, 2006. And don't get me wrong, the Yankees are always going to sign free agents. But now they have some more guys coming up to fill in, like Brett Gardner, perfect example. They have enough players where they could kind of see what this guy will give them in left field. A few years ago, they couldn't do that. Yeah, talk about Gardner for a second. It, um, you know, as someone who doesn't follow the Yankees uh, uh, religiously, um, Gardner, I have to say, just looking at his stats, uh, is kind of a surprising case. Sure. Um, it's sort of, it's almost like uh, Sean Figgins' season, well, mm-hmm. sort of increasingly, not this year as much, uh, but increasingly up to through last year, where he's a guy who uh, doesn't possess much power, but is able to control the strike zone really nicely and uses his speed to advantage, too. I don't know necessarily what his uh, infield hit percentage is right now, but I, I'm assuming it's decent given his sure. speed. 
he uh, he's worth some runs on the base paths. Um, I'm sure both from stolen bases and also from you know first to third type situations. Uh, was Gardner a guy you expected to perform what he is right now? I mean, I, what is his WAR? Do we know basically? It's, what? it's over two now. I think it's like two and a half around there. Right. So he's a more he's an above average player. Yeah. Right. And he, I think his his on base percentage is close to 400. Yeah. Um, is that something that you uh, foresaw, Exisa? No. Honestly, no. I didn't because. Just looking at him coming up to the minors, he wasn't like a big first-round draft pick. I think he was a third-rounder, and he was a slap-hitting guy with no power, and you kind of figured when he got to the big leagues, pitchers would challenge him, and he would probably get out more often than not, which, you know, obviously is the case. But a four, close to a 400 on base percentage, I didn't think that would – I honestly didn't see that ever coming. And he leads baseball in um, – well, last time I checked last week, and pitches seen for plate appearance. And just watching him play, he just – it seems like his – whole strategy at the plate is take until he gets to two strikes and then start fouling off everything humanly possible and hope for the best. And <laughs> yeah, he misses on like one out of every 100 swings. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's something in the strike zone. He doesn't miss at all. I think it was in the beginning of May, there was a point where he would still hadn't swung and missed at a pitch in the strike zone. And that was that completely blew my mind. And then sure enough, that night he went out and swung and missed that. Right. But that, I mean, that's almost like like Boggs-esque mm-hmm. contact skills, yeah. right? And then we were, you know, two and a half war, that's playing left field. If they would stick him in center field, he's that much more valuable. And they could, you know, if they want to sell high after this season, if they want to say, we can market him as 380 on base guy, he's a fantastic defender. So gold glove center fielder, four years of team control left. If they wanted to do that, they could. And years ago, they never had a guy like that. I almost think they... they should try to sell high on him. Um, he's had a rough six weeks. I forget. Yeah, the last six weeks haven't. Um, he hasn't been getting on base as much. He hasn't well, been still got three fifty on base in that period. Right. Yeah. right. You know, he's batting under 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 two hundred. Under two hundred. So he's walking, but he's not really getting the hits, and he hasn't really shown any proclivity for power. The doubles numbers. I think he's still in single digits in doubles. He has a handful of triples, but you know, and three, two inside the park yeah, runs. I think four or five home runs, but. He's a guy that the Yanks might be able to foist off on another team thinking that they have somebody who could be really good for a few years. And when you have a Carl Crawford on the market, um, you know, trading Gardner might be a move that actually makes sense for the next few years. I mean, Crawford's going to come with a pretty high price tag, but I think he's a much, much better player than Gardner. There's actually there's a good, uh, there's a good Gardner story from the mainstream media from a few years ago that uh, when he tried out, uh, he actually he didn't. Uh, he was a walk-on, uh, where I think it was Charleston Southern yeah, or wherever he went to, to college, and he goes to the to the tryout and tries out, and they said, "All right, come back the next day uh, if uh, your name's on the board. Uh, it means you made the team." And he shows up the next day in full uniform and says, "I know I belong." <laughs> and yeah, I, think he, I think he proved it. He was an All-American. We usually don't hear those stories about Yankee players. The Brett, really the, Brett Gardner, <laughs> the Brett Gardner, and I, I, did a, I snuck in a piece on the Yankee blog why Brett Gardner should be an All-Star. So I, I, I fall strongly on a certain How was the comment piece. section on that piece? Uh, it, it, was, it was pretty 50-50, okay. actually, yeah. which is, I guess, what, you're, what you hope for. Um, he's going to be an interesting test for Cashman because you're going to have the Crawford the people who are going to want Crawford, and you're going to have the people that are going to want to say, we brought this guy up through the system. Let's stick it out with him. 
And I also think they're not even they're not even getting full value out of him right now. He's still he's not stealing nearly as many bases as he appears capable of. And you know if that's if that they think it's a matter of him getting more confident on the base paths, mm-hmm. they, they probably want to keep him in that point because they know he can do that. You know, and if he can come around and get you know get more confident in the bases and start to uh, take more jumps and, and take more chances, yeah, he's going to be that much more valuable to the team. So I think if they think he can he can eventually do that, if it's a mental thing where he's got to get comfortable. Uh, I would say they're probably not going to trade him. He's also a great weapon to have if you wanted to. If you sign Crawford, to, you keep him, bring him in off the bench. He's a great weapon to have as a pinch hitter who can battle a closer late in the game, especially a closer that's going to be a little wild, or that can come in as a pinch runner. Right. Yeah, and he did that. He did the pinch running thing. Yeah. He could, I, I, late last year, he did it in the playoffs. Yeah. And when he, whenever he did that, it seemed like he was always kind of, he's got this knack for kind of being hesitant, where it's like he's just waiting and waiting for him to go, and he just... Won't do it. And that's kind of picked up throughout the season. And I read something the other day. He said he just kind of wore himself out early. Where He, he must have stole 11 bases in April, another 10 in May. And he was just, his legs were just, you know, tired and he couldn't do it anymore. So he slowed down. And he said, I want to pick that up. I think two of the things that we're talking about here, that the, the how to value players and how to make adjustments, are two things actually that drive Mets fans crazy. Because they're, they're things that we just don't feel that... Uh, this, that, the, that the Mets ownership and management have any idea how to do. So it's great for blogging because it makes for a lot of conversation and a lot of debate, but uh, it's not necessarily prime for success. So, you know, you get a situation like if the Mets had Gardner, they would milk him and they would probably miss the opportunity to move him. And if they had a guy like Burrow, they would hold on to him until it was too late or they wouldn't want to eat the money on it. And so you're constantly in this position where the roster isn't necessarily being maximized and it drives everybody crazy. And you well, see it right now, actually, with a lot of the players on the roster. Well, I'm curious about who I think of sort of the Mets uh, equivalent of Brett Gardner might be an Angel or Angel Pagan, uh, a, a talented player. And you guys might actually have differences of opinion on him. I think he's uh, currently one of the top-ranked players uh, by wins above replacement. Um, but I know, especially with uh, before the Bay injury, the Jason Bay injury, there was some question as to what was going to happen between Pagan and Jeff Francoeur. Yeah, and it was um, nonsense. Because it, it, what, was, what was fascinating to me was uh, you saw it coming down the pike. You knew people like, we were going to obviously want Pagan. And you knew that like a lot of the beat writers and these guys that spend every day with Jeff Francoeur in the locker room were going to take his side. Whether for whatever the reasoning might be, it, you could see it coming a mile away. And sure enough, it kind of happened. But it became also blatantly obvious that Frank Corr shouldn't have been the starter because he swings at everything and he's probably the opposite of Gardner. Yeah. Um, you know, so it kind of resolved itself relatively quickly. But there was a little while there where it was like, oh, this is going to be interesting to see how this plays out because you were going to have a lot of people that are, you know, pro-Pagan. And I mean, I, you know, I'll be honest, at the end of last year, I wasn't totally sold on Pagan because he did a lot of suspect things you know, on the base paths and, and his routes to balls in the field that you, it, it didn't feel, it felt like he could be better. And I questioned whether he had the ability or the, the uh, intellect, I think, to maybe make that jump, but he busted his ass in the off season. He did a lot of work. He's clearly a different looking player than he was towards the end of last year. Statistically very similar, but in terms of approach and just attitude and everything else, like he just has a completely different vibe to him. And you know, he's been great. And to consider putting a guy like Frank Corr in for him just because, you know, Frank Corr is a nice personality is ridiculous. <laughs> but there's always the worry that the Mets will make the wrong decision yeah. because that, that's, that's been their way. Luis Castillo. <laughs> I can jump in and ask a question for you guys who watch the Mets a lot more than I do. Uh, how does Pagan's defense play up in the corners compared to, the, to how he plays in center field? Because I know you said you just had 
It looks just more like a comfortable comfortable thing. I mean, it, I don't, it, he, he gets the balls the same way. Um, he looks a little slow, you know, out of the gate. That's the only difference. Like, he's, he takes, he reacts well to the ball in center. He doesn't seem to react well to the ball oh. in the corners. But my guess is, similarly to last year with center, that if a little bit of work involved, a, a little more practice. City, City Field's a complicated corners anyway, so yeah. like that may be part of it. Um, my guess is if he were to have to play right next year, he'd be completely fine. Though he should be in center over Beltron. Yeah, there, there's also, you have to remember, a little bit of a Beltron fear factor because you, you go in thinking that Carlos Beltron not only has center field, but he's got left center and right center. Right. And that's he, he's going to be a little wary when he comes over into the into the gaps like that. But his arm has been excellent. Uh, there, I think it was about a week ago. Uh, he's among the NL leaders in assists, and he should have had at least one or two more where plays got botched at the plate. Uh, the question that uh, someone, one of our talent, asked me the other day, they said, is this his ceiling? Is this the best he can be? And my answer to that is, I don't know. And his response was, well, right now, he might be your most tradable chip in the offseason. You're talking about Pagan? I'm talking about Pagan. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. He, he, could be, he could be a chip that could bring back a couple of things where, you might, uh, where you're essentially trading off the risk that he's not going to be 315, 30 steals. You know, two, three years in a row. Okay, um, I think we have maybe about uh, 10, 15 more minutes here. We're, I'd like to get some questions at, towards the end, but I do want to address one thing with the Yankees. You guys are, uh, the Yankees are very much in the middle of a pennant race. Sorry, guys. The, uh, <laughs> uh, I guess the question is now, um, are, 40 the Yankees, and 10. Come on. are the Yankees standing, uh, standing pat, or are there, uh, are there moves they have to make? Uh, is, and, you know, to, to that I would say, I'd, as a um, someone observing the Yankees, it seems like maybe Granderson uh, can be a problem sometimes, especially versus lefties. Um, I'm not sure if that's the biggest weakness. Is there another weakness, and how do they address it? I think, I mean, Granderson certainly hasn't been the player they wanted him to be this year, and I think what you'll see going forward is Gardner in center and Austin Kearns in left um, against some lefties. They'll just give Granderson the day off. He hasn't done much with lefties. You know, I think they'd ideally like to improve behind the plate. I don't think they expected Cervelli to get as much playing time as he did. And it's not really fair to dump on him constantly because he shouldn't be getting that much playing time. They want Posada to catch more. And you hear people calling for Jesus Montero to get called up. I don't think that's going to happen yet. Yeah. As a, sorry, as a catcher? As a catcher, yeah. I mean, he's, he's crushing the ball at AAA right now, and they say his defense is improved and it's probably not any worse than Posada's right now. Um, but I don't know if that's a great baseline at this point in their respective yeah. careers. Well, that's why I wanted to see the Yanks get on the Chris Snyder bidding, the guy that the Pirates got from the Diamondbacks. Uh, he was a little expensive for a backup catcher, but he's a guy who, if he needs to be pressed into semi-regular duty, isn't going to kill you at the plate. Uh, he's decent on defense. Uh, and he had the you know he had the one thing that the Yankees are able to to pick up at their one competitive advantage is salary. He's making some money this year. He's making something like five and a half million next year. Uh, that's something the Yankees can uniquely afford to do and give a player like that uh, you know the money to, because Cervelli, as, as Ben has said, Ben and I have discussed ad infinitum. You can't rely on Cervelli for that long. He's a decent backup, but when you have a guy like Posada who can't play every day anymore. You absolutely need a better, better backup catcher than that. Yeah, and I think going forward, they're not going to make any kind of big waiver trade or anything like that. They're going to wait for Andy Pettit to get healthy, and they're going to hope Lance Berkman starts hitting. I mean, he's had 15 at-bats. He's gotten two hits, and last night he had another one taken away from him. They're going to wait for him to start hitting. 
they're going to kind of hope, you know, Granderson gets on a roll. And if not, they'll platoon him with Kearns. You know, they're going to look for a utility infielder because Romero Pena is, I mean, he's god-awful. He's hey, horrible. Man, he can pick it with the best of them. Yeah, he's I very good. the Yankees radio broadcast, and he doesn't go fall over. Yeah. But that, I think they'll look internally more for that. I don't think they're going to make a trade. They're just going to say, you know what, let's see what happens when Pettit gets healthy. And we get Dustin Mosley out of the rotation. See what happens well, there. Moses has been like the least of their problems. Moses Moses actually pitched decently in his two starts. Yeah, but how long is that going to last? That's is that, I mean, more And we're also going to hope that at some point AJ Burnett just kind of goes on a tear like he did last year. Last summer he really had a nine or ten star stretch where he was fantastic. Well, obviously he's not going to be able to do that until he gets tattoos removed. Yeah. <laughs> until he loses the accent. That's a yeah, right, kind of right. a New York New York uh, mainstream media narrative. At some, they're going to hope he gets on a roll. Javi Vasquez has been pretty good since May. They're going to hope that keeps it up. And, you know, there's not really too much you can complain about as soon as they start winning. Is, is there a high confidence level in Kearns and Wood in uh, big spots and down the stretch? I don't know if you'd say in big spots, but, you know, Wood, has he's pitched pretty decently since getting to New York. I mean, you know, he's going to be... Probably a little better than Shanhill Park was, but that's also not setting the baseline <laughs> too high. Um, and Kearns will be like a 250 guy who will hit a couple of home runs and play adequate defense. But uh, you know, if you look at what Curtis Granderson's done against lefties, that's Kearns will be better in the lineup against lefties. Just the, all those moves, you know, Berkman, Kearns, and um, and Kerry Wood. It's just a marginal upgrade over the guys they had. Colin Curtis is a nice young player. He hit a he had a really cool home run where he. Pinch hit in the middle of an at bat because Garner kicked out, but he's not. He's not going to perform like Austin Kearns is. Juan Miranda's kind of a four A masher. Lance Parkman's better than him. Chanhol Park was awful. Kerry Wood is better than him. So they were small upgrades to a team that was already championship caliber. I don't think they're going to. Well, the worst part the about the is disgusting. And I think what those moves showed at the deadline was that the Yanks, and this is where Cashman sort of come along. They're willing to use their financial ability to improve. You know, they, they gave up nothing that they're going to miss. I mean, maybe Mark Melanson will be, you know, a decent middle reliever with the ceiling of a closer, but he hasn't really performed in the majors at all so far. And they, they budgeted this year where they allowed themselves about $10 million for the deadline, which is why they didn't sort of pursue Damon really hard in the offseason. And they, they've used that money now to sort of fill the holes and to make the – Make the back end of the team stronger. Are, are we going to hear you in five years saying that Berkman was another Canseco? Oh, it's, it's I'm hoping he'll be another David Justice, but it hasn't really <laughs> it hasn't gotten yeah. off to the grace starts. And Cashman has shown that he could. He's okay with kind of going for the kill. They went after Cliff Lee. They went after Dan Heron. They were in on Adam Dunn. But he was only going to do it at his price. He wasn't going to kind of overextend himself. Is that a departure from maybe Yankees of the past? or? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think a guy like... Um, Cliff Lee especially, a few years ago, well, a few years ago they wouldn't have been able to make that trade because they wouldn't have had the young players to give up. But even if they did, that's something they wouldn't have let get away. They would have added whatever they had to to make sure that they well, got him. Well, there was Randy Johnson in 04 then at the trade deadline where they couldn't get, they didn't have, Navarro and uh, Cano weren't getting the deal done. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, this would actually be a good time to, if, to see if there are any questions. Uh, yes, uh, sir. Um, all right. Uh, for I'm just going to add two questions, one for um, the RIV guys and one for Matthew and uh, Mark. Uh, start with the Yankees. Where do you see uh, the catching depth? I know the Yankees have a lot of good catching depth, obviously with Jesus, with Austin, and also with Gary Sanchez making a tear at this point. 
Where do you see the Yankees using their catchers? Obviously, maybe for some trade uh, for trade chips and things of that sort. Where do you see them going from there? And for uh, the Mets, where do you see their farm system? I'm not sure. I don't follow the Mets, obviously, but I'm not sure if the Mets farm system is ranked high, low. I don't know what uh, positions that they have a lot of depth in. Where do you see them going from this season on out? Well, as far as the catching goes, we know Jorge Posada is not going to be around forever. He's been pretty good this year, but he's had some nagging injuries. Some of it was kind of fluky. He got hit by a pitch, and he had a foul tip that broke his foot. Um, Jesus Montero at AAA, it, there's really a lot of questions of he'll be a catcher long term. So I think I think they'll be happy if he catches three days a week. DH is the other four. Austin Romine in AAA, in I'm sorry. They see him more as their future catcher. He's the guy who is there's no questions. He can stay behind the plate. He's maybe another year away. I mean, Gary Sanchez, he's tearing the cover off the ball, but it's a rookie ball. He's like four years away. But I think we saw with Cliff Lee, they'll shop, they'll shop Montero. If there's, you know, they're not going to just give him away. But for Cliff Lee, they're going to talk about it. I wouldn't be surprised at all if one of those guys was traded this offseason. But I think one of them, they're kind of eyeing, okay, we'll trade one or the other, but we'll keep the other one for the long term. And Where do you see Romine's bat? He's not going to be Jorge Posada, obviously, but if he's going to be a league average hitter with above average defense, that's a valuable player behind the plate. Especially if Montero is the backup. Right, especially if Montero is going to kind of caddy with him. But, you know, watching Jorge Posada all these years, I think we've gotten spoiled. And <laughs> I, I, it's going to sound cliche, but I think outside of New York, there's not enough appreciation for how good of a player Posada really is. I mean, he is a borderline Hall of Fame caliber player. It seems like he never kind of. Uh, well, Jonah will come on later and tell you that Posada is a sure thing Hall of Famer. Oh. I think he is, but I didn't I want think to he push it. <laughs> the one thing with the Yankees catching depth, though, I think it's kind of an undersold aspect of the story, is that you look what the Texas Rangers had a couple of years right. ago. They had you know these nutty, sure thing catchers, Taylor Teagarden and Jared Salamaki and Max right. Ramirez, and exactly zero of them have panned out to this point, and they've all had chances at the major league level. So I think the Yankees, you know, you have to remember that even though these guys are killing the upper levels of the minors, there is still a huge transition to go through the majors. And I really think, you know, as Mike said, I don't think they'll hesitate to deal one of them if the right deal comes along for the right pitcher or the right uh, position to fill. I think they do see Montero's bat as something that will play at the major league level. And the questions for him are really, will he be able to catch? I don't know if they're actually as willing to deal him um, as we think. You know, Cashman said, or at least Cashman said through Joel Sherman, um, that, no, that's, that's not a critique of Sherman. He's very well connected with the Yankees. But I think that the Yanks were willing to trade Montero in a deal for Cliff Lee because the Yankees view Cliff Lee as basically the guy they really, really want. I mean, he's their number one target right now. And they were willing to deal Montero for him to sort of ensure that he wouldn't land on another team for the playoffs and also land in a situation where another team with maybe a new owner who's looking to make a splash will try to bid pretty high for him this well, season. I, with regard to Montero, uh, actually Brian Smith did a pretty excellent piece uh, before the season about the differences between Montero's value as a catcher mm-hmm. and as a first base DH type. And the, the differences are, I mean, yeah. they're crazy. Of course, yeah. Right. So even if he can, even if he can catch it all, it's, you need to put, play him there, but is that the way? Uh, but I understand uh, from from a value standpoint, that's the case. But we also see, like, um, I think with the Los Angeles Angels, for example, the reluctance to play someone like Mike Napoli, for reasons that uh, you know, social would probably say has something to do with comfort with the pitching staff. 
uh, or something like that. Where, what are what, what are you guys setting the, the chances at uh, with uh, Montero sticking at catcher? I, I call him less than fifty percent. I do think based on just based on what we've heard, it sounds like nobody believes he's going to stick there long term. If he can do it for two or three years, and then he has to move, great. You know that's that's fine. The thing with the Yankees is the DH spot is going to be clogged up for a while because at some point Alex Rodriguez is going to have to move there. Down the line, you might have to move Mark Teixeira there, so they're not going to. You know, I don't think they want to tie it up with, you know, kind of have to set one guy where they're going to play him there for the next five years. I don't think any team wants that. You know, for now, they've, for now they've definitely been committed to having Montero learn to catch. They haven't, they sort of resisted the urge to stick him in left field and tell him, hey, you learn this position. They haven't put him at first. Um, he's thrown out around 20% of base dealers at AAA this year, which isn't terrible from where he was a few years ago. That has to do with the pitchers as well. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think Cashman's line was, if we have to move him to first base, that's not hard to learn. He could do that and make that transition pretty quickly. He's got to spend as much time to work on his catching as he can. So. Uh, as far as the Mets farm system goes, it's actually it's, it's interesting. They've got, uh, you know, around the trade deadline, talked to a lot of different people around the game, and they have younger pitchers and players in the lower levels that people are really excited about. And then they've got guys already on the major league roster that are helping and have proven uh, valuable. But there's this vast wasteland in the middle that makes it really difficult to make trades and, and do things at the trade deadline and, and, and whatnot. So, I mean, I actually think they're in an interesting position because if they can move some of the bulk money that they have wasting space on the major league roster now, it'll provide an interesting opportunity to kind of build around another, a newer crop of younger players, guys like John Neese and Ike Davis. Uh, I put Pelfrey in that category and Bobby Parnell and, you know, I mean, they've got a good group there that they can work with and then bring other free agents in to build kind of a new era. Um, but then there'll be a little bit of a, a limbo before these younger single-A kind of guys kind of come back through the system. So it's not as bad as I think it's portrayed. Uh, you know, we, we heard all last summer that the Mets have nothing in the farm system. And then all of a sudden, this time around, everybody wanted, you know, Ike Davis and Josh Tolley and John Neese and all these guys. They weren't talked about a year ago. Now all of a sudden... You know, Henry Mejia has, has potential. So uh, I think the Mets kind of get pigeonholed into this uh, situation with their farm system that may or may not be true. I mean, you never really know until these guys get to the big leagues. They have a 17-year-old or 18-year-old, I guess, shortstop now. Uh, a lot of people love this kid, but it's going to be six, seven years from now before he's actually, you know, an everyday, you know, major leaguer. It's a long time. So, like, that leaves a lot of, uh, you know, room uh, to make decisions. And so I, I don't think it's as, as bad as it's portrayed. Um, at the same time, you know, they, they could use more help. There's no question. The one thing that happens with the Mets over the last five, ten years or so, particularly this administration, the prospects that you hear about, eh, yeah. but the guys that you don't, someone like Daniel Murphy was a good example a couple of years ago, even Ruben Tejada to an extent, mm -hmm. who came up and was fantastic defensively, you didn't necessarily hear about them, but you hear about Mahim, 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 and here's the next Mariano. All right, that's, right. Let's, let's ease up a little bit on that. The guys that they talk up are the guys that, that wind up, they try it's to true. try to trade. I, I see this all the time. I hear it, and I see it uh, you know, written to me that the Mets overhype their prospects. And I, I don't really know what that even means, because yeah. they don't talk about anybody. But, other, but other, enough other people. <laughs> right. It's Michael this Holmes. kind of outside view 
where people will latch on to Henry right. Mejia, Daryl Strawberry will shoot his mouth off. He's not even part of the organization. And then right. all of a sudden it becomes the next Mariano and the Mets are hyping their prospects. But the Mets are sitting there going, don't say Jack. <laughs> and, there's, you know. and there's no way it's a fear to, that you're, going, you're, you're competing with the Yankees. So you, right. have to, you have to say good things about your younger players. Do you think, just looking at the Mets farm system from, uh, you know, from the outside, as far as some of the handling, as the way they handle some of these guys, it seems like they're very aggressive, like Mejia. They example. were. That was actually, it's interesting you say that. That was part of the previous, what was, what was Bernard, the my, scouting director? Uh, really, he was yeah, more of just, yeah, right. He just <laughs> ran with an iron fist. He, uh, he was, that was his philosophy, was bring these young kids up, test them. Yeah. Let them make that adjustment. You know, if you talk to any of them, the hardest thing is making that, sure. that jump, those little jumps. You know, once they get their feet wet, get wind in their sails, they usually do fine. If the talent's there, the talent's there. Um, and so I think their, his philosophy was push them. And the minute he left, that stopped. Yeah, exactly. And looking, when, looking at Mejia this year, sure. I, I was looking at it, I was like, there's no reason for this. Well, that... Especially the way they were yeah, using him in he, blowout situations where it was kind of... Right, that's a completely a different situation. And, that was that screamed a, that's a GM and a manager job. that are trying to save their jobs yeah. and trying to put the best 25 guys. And that speaks more to the lack of, um, you know, better options. Mm-hmm. You know, a 19 year old kid was the best choice, yeah. which what you're putting yourself in kind of an awkward position. there. So kind a, of a lose lose. Right. Yeah. All right. Um, so actually, uh, it looks like that's going to conclude our New York baseball panel. Uh, so thank you very much, guys, uh, to them. Now you can get- But we have, uh, we certainly have plenty more nerd for you um, on tap. And uh, right now, I guess we have the uh, the media panel. Yeah. All right. So let's do that. Thank you, guys. Thanks.